So how many of us have watched our kids run in after school, eyes wide with delight because the class or the school is raising money for a cause and your kids are into it, like really into it? I've been there. Of course, you may be the first person your kid asks, and of course you're willing and not just because she's going to spend it on something that will not ruin her teeth, but because it gives you such pride, such joy to see your kid's so motivated about something that she's actually excited about raising money. I have found that schools actually do a really good job of igniting kids in this way, of building a culture of philanthropy in their classrooms. So how is it that we instill this in our kids and yet so many grown-ups approach the subject with a certain degree of distaste? I just love the work of your organization and I'm so flattered to be considered for board service, but just so you know, I really can't ask people for money. You, who were probably once that wide-eyed, motivated young kid, excited to do what it took to raise money for a worthy cause, changed. Somewhere along the line, that culture of philanthropy we found in elementary school has evaporated. Hunting for an answer to this question, I found today's guest and she's a good one. What does it mean to have a culture of philanthropy? We experienced it as kids. Where did it go? How do we get it back? Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and an abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, the dear Abby of nonprofits, gets it, and she is here to help. My guest today is Claire Axelrad. After a short stint as an attorney, Claire decided the best way for her to be of service was to become a frontline leader, helping raise raising millions of dollars for organizations ranging from the San Francisco Food Bank, Jewish Family and Children's Services, and the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. She was a, she's a blogger, and then she jumped into the training and coaching business. She's a resource on philanthropy for organizations, a thought partner to executive directors and boards, and a mentor to wannabe and current development, both fundraising and communication staff. She also operates Clarification as her own online mini fundraising school. Claire, many thanks for joining me today and sharing your insights with our listeners. Thank you so much, Joan. Thank you for having me. And I'm, I'm already struck by what you've just described as culture. Because I think culture can be defined two ways, either as a societal trend or as an environment, like a corporate environment. And kids exposed to philanthropy are like kids exposed to the arts, exposed to culture. They, they take to it. They get excited by it. They find it inspiring and, and even fun. So that's more the first definition of culture. And I think adults take to philanthropy as well. It's fundraising that they don't like. You know, and, and sometimes I will be with boards and I will ask them to give me the first word that comes to their mind when I say fundraising. And they give me a bunch of really nasty words like begging and yucky and chore and scary and necessary evil. They do. And so then I say, Okay, what comes to your mind when I say philanthropy? And then they give me lovely words. They say generous, loving, caring, helpful, transformative. 
So I really always like to begin by reframing fundraising as facilitating philanthropy. My, my motto on clarification is philanthropy, not fundraising. You really need to make it about the gentle process of teaching the joy of giving. And that joy is what we need to recapture, that passion that brought us here in the first place. So what does it mean when, so I get that. I totally get that. I actually, I do that a similar kind of thing with boards sometimes, ask them, and I get, I, I often get the word terrifying, and then I, um, then I throw up a picture of Sully Sullenberger landing of the plane in the Hudson River, and I say, that's terrifying. <laughs> Raising money for causes you care about doesn't come even close to that. Um, but I want so why, why do you think that the word what, what is it about is philan what is philanthropy about that fundraising is a, is it is it about philanthropy is about giving and fundraising is about begging is that what it is well fundraising is about money and money is still probably the biggest taboo subject in our society people will talk about anything else they'll talk about sex religion politics you name it they don't want to talk about money they were, they were brought up that it's not nice to talk about money. And it does make them feel like they're begging. You know, there's all sorts of pejoratives associated with money. We call it filthy lucre, you know, and, and especially people who work in nonprofits, they don't even think they're supposed to make money. So, so they definitely don't want to be asking for it, but philanthropy literally translated from the Greek means love of humankind. Nobody's against that. That's the business that we're in. And so when you can, when you can reframe what you're doing as facilitating philanthropy, making it possible for other people to enact what they love, what they already want to do, what they're already passionate about, then you see that you're actually doing something good. You're, you're helping people attain their, their highest level of meaning or fulfill a moral or religious obligation or just do something that they couldn't do on their own. They don't know how to cure homelessness on their own and they feel like the change that they put into the homeless person's cup that they see when they walk to their office every day is nice, but they just don't feel mm -hmm. like they're really making an impact. They're not, they're not making a dent in the problem and they want to and the only way they can do it is through your organization. So if you don't, I always say to people, if you love a restaurant or if you love a movie, don't you share it with your friends? Yep. You just, yeah. So then I say, so do you love this nonprofit? Yeah, I love it. Why are you being so stingy? Why aren't you sharing? <laughs> yeah. Yep. I have that same, the same thing. I, uh, it, uh, I joke around when I talk, when I talk to board members, I say, well, what, here's the worst thing that can happen is you're at a cocktail party, you know, with friends and somebody says, uh, so are you, you know, are you still on the, uh, you know, meals on wheels board? And, well, and the person just simply says, yeah, I am. <laughs> <laughs> we call that, I'll take missed opportunities for 400 Alex. Right. Um, so, so talk to me clear. I, first of all, I have never heard that definition of philanthropy, so the, the Greek origin of it, and I'm just totally gobsmacked by that. So 
you know, people talk about building a culture of philanthropy in your organization. So let's, let's start at the beginning. How would you define that? How would you define what a culture of philanthropy in a nonprofit organization looks like? Okay. Well, one of my favorite definitions of this comes from Jeff Schreifels, who wrote, um, it's not just about the money. And mm -hmm. what he said is, when anyone walks through the doors of the organization, what is felt is love, empathy, righteous anger, grace, hard work, personal care, and more love. And it is something that you can just feel. And many nonprofits are really horrible cultures to work in. Everybody feels overworked, they feel underpaid, they feel stressed out, they don't feel appreciated. So that is not a culture of philanthropy. And you are no doubt familiar with all of the work that the Walter and Evelyn Haas Jr. Fund has done on this subject. And they've they published three reports right. thus far, Underdeveloped, Beyond Fundraising, and Bright Spots. And they came up with four core components of a culture of philanthropy, which I think are brilliant. And the first before you go to those yeah. four, before you go to those four, because I know that there are people like driving in their cars or they're on their elliptical machine. Can you do that definition again? Because it was a list there and I want everybody to hear each word okay. with intention. Do it again. When anyone walks through the doors of the organization, what is felt is love, empathy, righteous anger, grace, hard work personal care and more love. Wow. That is, that's a, that is one hell of a list. Okay. So I did not mean to interrupt you, but I really felt like I wanted to hear that list again. Yeah. No. So now, now you're talking about the, uh, the, the Haas foundation, which does extraordinary work. And I interrupted you about to talk about, um, uh, four components, I think. Right. And so the first one is shared responsibility for development. And that is really, really important. Too often organizations put the development staff person over in the corner and say, go raise money. <laughs> or, or maybe they have a development committee of the board and they say, that's your job. And the rest of the board is relieved of responsibility for fundraising. So this shared responsibility means that everybody in the entire organization, program staff, volunteer coordinators, receptionists, everyone promotes philanthropy and can articulate a case for giving. Not everyone has to ask people for money, but everyone has to buy into the central role that asking plays in furthering the shared mission. Okay, so shared responsibility for fundraising is, is number one. I'm ready for number right. two, Claire. Number two is integration and alignment with mission. So in other words, everyone sees that fund development is, is a mission aligned program of the organization. You know, it's not, oh, they're just money grubbers. It's that these people are working just as hard as we are to further the mission. If money doesn't come in, then we can't do our jobs. And I, you know, I always talk to program staff and say, you know, the reason people give has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with you. You're doing this fabulous job. 
it's something that they value. Uh, you're meeting demonstrated needs. I just need stories to tell them, to show them, because when they see the wonderful work you're doing, it inspires them to want to be involved in the work as well. And when they make a philanthropic contribution, you can do more of that work. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right, I'm ready for number three. Okay, number three is a focus on fundraising as engagement. So what that means is that our supporters want some kind of engagement with our mission that's not always a financial contribution. Mm -hmm. So it might be volunteering. And, and, and then over time, their engagement with us may lead to a financial co contribution. And so what this means is that marketing and fundraising functions have to be together. They can't be siloed. You know, the, the, the marketing people can't just be going out there with one message and the fundraising people with another message. Or, I don't know, I, I was with one organization where I walked in and the volunteer coordinators felt that volunteers existed only to serve the clients. They did not exist at all to serve the volunteers. So it was like, we need someone to, to commit to driving seniors to their appointments and they have to give us at least five hours a week or we don't want them, they're not useful to us. And they okay. didn't think at all about how we were a social service organization. We were all about helping people live happier, more productive, more fulfilling lives. And weren't these volunteers also people that we could help lead happier, more productive, fulfilling lives. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, once we figured that out, many, many more of these, well, first of all, we attracted many more volunteers. And second, many more of the volunteers became financial contributors as well because they were engaged. Totally. Totally. So that was three, right? That was three and four. And you can see all of these are somewhat related. Mm -hmm. Four is, is strong donor relationships, where donors are really seen as partners, not just dollar signs, not just targets. They're not people you, you do something to, they're people you do something with. And so this means you have to have systems in place that help you to build really strong relationships and support the donor's connection to the work. Again, a reason why, why marketing and, and fundraising have to be together, but also program staff and fundraising have to be together. Uh, I can't really help to build a stronger relationship with my donors if I'm not able to tell them some really great, compelling, inspiring stories about the impact of their giving. And if every time I go to somebody on the program staff, they tell me, I don't have time for you then I'm not going to get that, that, that sizzly stuff that people are looking for. <clears throat> the degree to which nonprofits can be siloed in this way kind of is stunning to me. Um, and, and in fact, the, 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 the actual tension, not only do they not, are they not in alignment often uh, or working together, often they're working at odds with one another. I mean, sort of how dare you, how dare you ask me to help you with fundraising? That's your job. Or I think there's often such a ton of tension that, that, that is created between marketing and fundraising, which is, in fact, based on what you just said, it's just like completely anathema to what really needs to happen. Right. 
So talk to me a little bit about, um, okay, you've now described what it looks like. Um, so I, I, I wonder if you have, you know, I think about building a culture of philanthropy a little bit like sort of igniting, kind of getting a fire started. And I wonder if like, what are the key ingredients in a nonprofit organization to sort of, to ignite people in, and to start to build this different kind of culture? What do you see as the key ingredients? Okay. Well, as I already said, when, when I encounter organizations without a culture of philanthropy, I inevitably find one shared trait among the majority of people within the organization, board and staff, they're embarrassed by fundraising. So again, they hire a development staffer, they put them in the corner, they say, go forth and fundraise. No one else wants to get their hands dirty because they think it's about money. They don't think it's about impact. So that's where you get the staffers saying, that's not my job. The board members saying, I'll do anything but fundraise. So that's where I, I think that there's kind of three ingredients. One is you have to reframe fundraising. You have to understand that fundraising is not an end in and of itself. Nobody's just sitting there going, hey, give some money to our organization. It's really um, Hank Rosso, who was the founder of the fundraising school, used to say fundraising is servant to philanthropy. In other words, it's just the tool. It's just the ultimate way that you bring people together who share the same values. If, if you look at the world as a universe of different values, some people love the environment, other people love helping seniors, others animals, others the arts, others education. There's all these values. And everything that you do in development, which means fundraising and marketing strategies, whether it's a newsletter or an event or a direct mail piece, everything you're doing is trying to uncover the people out there who share the values that your organization enacts. And so that's everybody. Like, hey, let's find others who want to join us in this cause. And then you get to fundraising, which is just making the match. You now know the people who are interested because they've come to your event or they've opened your newsletter or they've volunteered. Now you just say, hey, you're passionate about this. We're passionate about this. How about joining us? So, so that's number one is kind of reframing what fundraising is. And number two is, is clarify everybody's roles right off the bat. So I'm sure you, you have encountered over and over again, board members who say, when I joined the board, I was told I didn't have to fundraise. I believe that there may be some people who are driving to work that might have just driven off the road. <laughs> could you please get, could you please all get back on the highway now? Because, uh, yes, you are not the only one. Many, 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 many people have board members who say, nobody told me I had to fundraise. Anyway, you were saying Claire. Right. Right. And again, that gets back to the, the reframing. You know, because fundraising to, you know, if people hear they have to do that, they have to go ask people for money and they're scared to death of doing that. They'd be like, I don't, I don't, I don't think this is for me, but correct. a lot of this is just, you know, it's really basic board 101. Like the board has, the board member has a dual responsibility. I know, you know, this backwards and forwards. The, the first is the, is the role of the board as a whole. 
their governance role. And this is where they kind of set the agenda. They develop the strategic plan, they prepare the budget, they decide you know, how many programs they're gonna have, how big they're gonna be, are they gonna scale back, they hire the executive director. That's the governance role. Then as an individual board member, they have a financing role. They have to make sure the organization has the resources to do all the things they decided they were gonna do in the governance role. And if they don't do that, they've essentially got an unfunded mandate. You know, let's do all this stuff, but oh my gosh, I, I don't know how it's gonna happen. I, I, as the board member, certainly wouldn't, wouldn't think that it was on me to figure it out exactly how it's gonna happen. Right, and then they're and then they're finance. Then they then they play their financial role by looking at numbers that didn't get hit, and saying, "Gee, well, it would have been really nice for us to do X, Y, and Z, but gee, now we can't afford it. We're going to have to scale that back." And that's just a downward right. spiral. Right. So if they want to play the governance role, they have to play the financing role. It, it's otherwise it's a non-starter. So they just need to understand that coming in, and the financing role isn't necessarily a fundraising role. I mean, it might might be that they set up uh, businesses, you know, that bring in earned income. You know, some some organizations do that and do a, a minimal amount of, of actual uh, asking people for philanthropic contributions. But also, it can be being an advocate, being an ambassador. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things that you can do: opening doors, uh, making thank you calls, writing personal notes on appeals bringing people to events that you can do that stop just short of asking. So, you know, I, I ultimately like to get to the point where after someone has been an advocate and an ambassador for a while, they get to the point where they're comfortable with asking, uh, but they don't have to start there. So clarifying board roles is one thing. Clarifying staff roles is another thing if you want to get to a culture of philanthropy. It really should be in everybody's job description that they help to, to contribute to philanthropy. And, and this should be included in their orientation. It should be included in the employee handbook. People should be evaluated on this. So at the organization I was talking about before where we sort of transformed the volunteer program so that volunteer coordinators came to understand that volunteers were really partners in the mission and people that they served as much as the volunteers served their needs. Um, we put it in their job descriptions that they, that a certain number of their volunteers, that they had a goal, a certain number of them would also become financial contributors. So it started to become more important to them that they provide a good experience for these volunteers. So you're talking a little bit about the board uh, as an entity and I wanted to talk for just a second about um, the leadership of the organization. And uh, anybody who's listened to me or read any of my blogs knows that I deeply believe that a thriving nonprofit is kind of like this twin engine jet and that the board chair and the executive director are up there in the cockpit kind of as co-pilots and that each engine has to work, it has to high function independently and together. So if you're going to build a culture of philanthropy in your organization, what's the role that the co-pilots play? Does the flame 
to ignite the organization in this way need to come from both the board chair and the executive director? Absolutely. I, th I think everyone, everyone needs to be on fire in your organization. And leadership comes from the top. There's no substitute for this. So the executive director and the board president have to preach religion on this topic. You know, we, we have all these old adages like walk the talk and put your money where your mouth is and all of that. And there, there really is a reason because why would anybody do what you're not willing to do? Yeah, this is a, one of my, one of my things when I talk to people about, um, being an ambassador is the number like my two favorite words are join me, right? Right. Join me. I love this organization. I want you to know about it. So, right. I just saw, uh, a, the shape of water. I love it. I think people should go see it. It's not at all a movie I thought I would really like, hmm. but it's like magical. And they, ha people have to be able to say that about their organization, join me and uh, join me in that experience. So then later we can sort of talk about it and, and, and have that shared sense of community and agree and disagree and learn. And, you know, in the case of an organization, learn more about this sector together and all of that. And I just, um, I, that absolutely has to come from the top and, you know, hopefully you've recruited an executive director that brings fire with her or him. Um, and there are probably all people driving down the highway right now that are saying, if only my board chair would return my calls, maybe he, he or she could be a champion for right. philanthropy. And, and I think part of this is that development should always be on the agenda wherever you're having a meeting. So that means uh, at your board meetings, you should never have a meeting where development is not on the agenda. You have to discuss the importance of philanthropy all the time. And I mean, I used to have a great boss and we would have executive team meetings and development was always on the agenda. She would always discuss the importance of philanthropy to the organization. And she would tell everybody, you need to cooperate with Claire. This is really important. This is what's going to make our organization mm -hmm. thrive. So I think that leaders need to articulate philanthropy's role in advancing the mission and the values so that staff can see how fundraising fits within the organization and how it's really essential and noble work. And the more that you can help all staff understand that development enables the organization to sustain and to strengthen and to expand its service, the more cooperation and ownership you're going to encourage. We are, uh, we have the pleasure and the privilege of talking today with Claire Axelrad, who is a fundraising consultant, a trainer, and a coach. She's had over three decades of fundraising experience, and just in the first 20 minutes or so of this podcast has illustrated herself as smart, articulate, act, her ideas are actionable. She's just a real nonprofit treasure, reaching thousands with her blog at www clarification.com. That's C-L-A-I-R-I-F-ication. <laughs> She's prolific and smart, and she does have that sort of wide-eyed enthusiasm I talked about at the very beginning, like a little kid on Halloween collecting for UNICEF for the first time. Um, so speaking of little kids, uh, I want to digress for just a second, Claire, and say, um, uh, I, I, 
you know, when you were at the kitchen table or the dining room table for a holiday, when you were a kid and you had one of those aunts that like always asked those kind of goofy questions and she turned to you and said, what do you want to be when you grow up, Claire? Um, what did you say at that time? And would that aunt be surprised that you have wound up where you are today? Just curious. You know, uh, no, that I never knew. I always had no answer to that question. I felt, <laughs> I felt bad that I didn't know, but pretty much didn't know. See, I, you know, it's funny. I, I, I didn't know either, but I always worried about those people who really, really knew. Cause I, I, I cause like my college roommate, still one of my dearest friends wanted to be a doctor from the time she was like six. And I remember like late, late night in the dorm, like turning to her one night and said, I don't mean to be like a pain in the neck, but what if you're wrong? What if you actually aren't going to be like, what if you don't want to be a doctor? So I actually liked the, the, the open road seemed better to me. Well, when I went off to college, I thought I wanted to be a translator at the UN. And, and I, you know, I didn't end up doing that because I, I didn't like the literature classes where you learn the language, but all you got to do was like read and analyze literature. That was my thing. But it's funny that you mentioned that UNICEF thing, because I don't know if I told you, but I had this experience where I actually was collecting for UNICEF. I had my little milk carton because that's what you used to mm -hmm. have. And you had this UNICEF right. label around it. I was with my sister. We, we knocked on some woman's door and we said, trick or treat for UNICEF. And she got so angry and annoyed and she screamed at us and she said, Halloween is for children. And she, <laughs> she then stuffed, she stuffed this taffy candy into our boxes. So there was no room for any more money. And we looked at each other and we kind of went, UNICEF is for children. So, so here we have this conundrum between mission and passion, love of, love of children, love of humankind and money. You shouldn't be collecting money. That is so funny. So you went uh, just, again, I don't mean to digress, but I always love to talk to people about their paths. Um, you actually went on to be an attorney. I did. I, How yeah. long did that last? <laughs> that lasted for about two years. I mean, I really, what I found was it was very procedural. It might have been the type of law I was in, which was civil litigation, but it seemed like whoever had the most money won. <laughs> they just had the money to, you know, keep filing pleadings and discovery and et cetera. And it just, it wasn't, it wasn't really what I had signed up for. Um, and so the path from attorney to fundraiser? <laughs> well, I did a lot of research interviews. I probably interviewed about 200 people trying to decide what I wanted to do. It was a fascinating process, and I am a huge proponent of research interviews. You don't have to be as extreme as I was, but I, <laughs> I, 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 I was looking in several different areas, public affairs, public relations, and design. And somewhere along the line, somebody said, you know, I think you might be interested in the flip side of what we do. This was a public affairs department at a corporation that did their corporate giving there. And so then I started looking at nonprofits. They said, you might be interested in development. And I had no idea what development was. So I, I just kind of went back home and started asking people like, do you know what development is? Because this was before there was an internet. You could research it easily. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then when I started talking to nonprofits, it was like, oh, yeah, 
this is what I want to do. Yeah, it's interesting. So, um, I, uh, I got my first nonprofit EDU job with no fundraising experience and my development director, um, hit the right button when she said, you know, Joan, it really makes people feel good to give money to causes that they care about. And most executive directors come to the work a, because they want to make a difference, but they're also tend to be pleaser personalities. And so she hit my pleaser button. <laughs> I was off to the races, pleasing people by ask, by giving them the opportunity to invest and, you know, make a commitment to a cause that was meaningful to them. So I, um, uh, it's just a, it's a funny thing how money uh, gets in the way. Um, well, and then and we, we even have research now that's been done with MRIs that shows that when people give and when they even contemplate giving, the pleasure center of their brain lights up. They get this shot of dopamine. It's the same area of the brain that is responsible for enjoying sex, enjoying chocolate, whatever. You get that much of a feel good when you make a philanthropic gift. So that comes back to reframing fundraising. Yes, it totally does. Because somehow or another, people see it and they visualize it as getting someone to take a crowbar to their wallets. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what I do. You know, a lot of times people want me to come in and do a quote unquote board training session. Yep. And I don't call it that. I call it an inspiring philanthropy session. And often what I have done is I send out an announcement asking people to come to a chocolate tasting and saying philanthropy can be as addictive as chocolate. And they come because <laughs> they want the chocolate. And I do like I've gotten, you know, different chocolate chocolatiers. What are they? I think that's what they're called because there's a yeah, they are. So I've gotten them to come to kind of showcase their product, and we, we do that. Um, but we also talk about how addictive philanthropy can be, how great it can be, and we talk about what they're most passionate about. And if they can go around the room and tell their story, why they got involved, why they stay involved, they start getting really in touch. And to me, passion is the number one way to overcome fear of fundraising. It's just get in touch with your own passion, whatever it takes to do that. And a lot of times it is these mission moments at meetings where we bring in people who have been helped and they talk about it, or it's sending people out into the field and letting them see and touch the work. And that's not just something that board members should do. That's something that staff should do too. And a lot of fundraising staff are very disconnected from their missions. So they kind of do lose the passion that they came in with. And that's not a good thing. So the first thing is just connect with your passion. Once you're passionate, it's so much easier to enact your passion and ask other people, as you say, to join you in it. Completely, completely. So let me ask a, a question that comes up for, for me a lot with clients. Um, and I work with a bunch of new EDs, both as clients and also through my online membership site called the Nonprofit Leadership Lab. And these these, you know, these new executive directors are carefully selected for exactly what you talked about, their passion, their commitment to the organization, and in, in many cases, their fundraising experience. They walk in the door and they inherit a rather listless board with members who claim that when they were recruited, yes, they were never told about fundraising obligation. Um, let's also add into the mix that 
maybe this organization doesn't have term limits or doesn't enforce them. Any advice for the people who are listening and enjoying everything you are saying about how a brand new ED can turn this group of people, uh, it can start to build a culture of philanthropy on our board like this, or do you just really need to weed them out and get new people? Well, I think first off, you have to help them understand their role. And it's very, very easy for staff to criticize board for being underperforming. Correct. But how can they perform well if they don't understand their role and their responsibilities? And, you know, it's funny how a lot of times I will talk to staff and they'll say, our board doesn't do anything. And then I'll talk to board and they'll say, staff doesn't ever ask us to do anything. Yep. Except, except sell tickets, go there. Where, where's your donor? Open your Rolodex. Like it's a naggy kind of transactional relationship with the board sometimes. Right. So it's important. Staff have an ongoing responsibility to orient and to educate and to develop their board so that they can effectively fulfill their job, which means if you're coming in as a new ED to a, a board that's listless, you want to sit down with each of them one-to-one and find out what their experience is and what their understanding is of their role and then explain to them how you see their role, you know, and talk with them about how do they feel about that and is this something they feel that they can commit to. You really can't afford to have your board slots, which are very valuable, filled with people who are just cranky and passive and who drag other members down. And, and, and that said, what you're describing here and we are nearly out of time as I look at the clock here, that there's a role the staff, the ED, the development director, if you're lucky enough to have one, that they have, that they have to play in, de- as you say, d- defining the role, understanding why someone joined the board, what success looks like to them. What, uh, uh, you know, one of the things I'm so clear about is that people who join boards tend to be really successful people, type A, successful people. They want to be successful, but I think far too often we do not define what success looks like so they don't know when they achieve it. And, uh, and that's the fastest way to lose good people is to, is not to define for them what success looks like to tie that in to say, you know, when you finish this on this board after four years or six years, what do you want to be able to say was your impact that you brought that was unique, you know, that nobody else could bring. And let me make sure that as we engage you over the course of your tenure, that we're able to we're able to deliver that for you because if we can deliver that for you, we know that you're going to be a highly engaged board member who's going to love the process of inviting people to, to join our organization in one way, shape or form. I think that's super true. And the, and the one caveat I would add is that if you have a board member who says, well, you know, I, I really excel in, in, Uh, real estate. And so I'm happy to help you when you need me to find facilities for you and, and rentals and things like that. That's how you should use me. I don't really want to fundraise. You still have to explain to them their role, their financing role. And, you know, there, there is sort of this scarcity mindset that prevails in fun in, in nonprofits, which is the opposite of a culture of philanthropy 
where everyone whines about how hard it is to raise money to the point that it becomes a self-fulfilling thing. And, and I call that the cup half empty board, mm -hmm. which leads to the cup half empty organization. So, totally true. so you need to talk to them about the things that they really want to do, they feel really comfortable with, and then help them grow into the other things that they really need to do that you can help them to become more comfortable with. And, and then they can feel much more, more useful to you. So I have about an hour's worth more of questions, but that's not how podcasts work, I'm afraid. Um, there is a wonderful interview that Claire did uh, with Network for Good. And um, I'm also going to grab a number of things from Claire that she spoke about during this podcast and add them as notes below the podcast. But of an excellent Q&A on Network for Good that asks, you know, how do you contend with with board members who are afraid of the quid pro quo or the, I don't know any rich people. So this, uh, that's a, that's a great resource, but you just need to go to clarification. You need to be a subscriber. Uh, you need to really look at some of the stuff that Claire does because what I gave you today was about a 40 minute big fat appetizer. And I just really wanted to say, Claire, thank you so much. I, th I believe I had a big aha moment with the, the origin of the word philanthropy, and I'm going to uh, use it and credit you amply every time I do. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Joan. I think we agree about a lot. I think people should pay a lot of attention to Joan's website as well. <laughs> well, I was thinking as you were talking through most of this, I was thinking, wow, it's like she was at one of my workshops or like I was at one of hers. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's fun to disagree, but boy, it's also really fun to agree. So anyway, um, we are out of time. I want to just say a couple of quick things. Um, I, I mentioned Claire's website, clarification.com. Uh, I have a weekly blog at a blog that you can, uh, that you can join at joangary.com. That's G-A-R-R-Y where I provide advice both in blog and video form for board and staff leaders. This podcast now is over 50 episodes on a variety of topics. So go to iTunes and look at the different topics and find the ones that really meet your, your current needs. And then, um, just a final word that we also have an online membership site called the nonprofit leadership lab. It is intended specifically for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits for whom consultants and coaches like Claire and me are cost prohibitive. We will be opening registration in mid April. You can go to, uh, what is it called? Nonprofit, sorry, nonprofitleadershiplab.com to learn more about that. Um, we have uh, lots of folks in that community that are gaining from both the content that we provide as well as the community that exists there. So join us, join Claire. Don't forget that there are so many resources out there. You're not alone. And um, you're not alone in terms of all of the people who are out there with you fighting the good fight. So thanks very much for joining us. And we will see you next time. Take care. Nonprofits Are Messy is a service of Joan Gary Consulting. Widely known as the Nonprofit Dear Abby, Joan's leadership blog reaches over 40,000 unique visitors monthly from over 150 countries. Subscribe at www.joangary.com.